Hello and uh, welcome to this episode of the LangFM podcast. My guest today is uh, Holly Bale, an interpreter and translator from Dallas, Texas. Hello, Holly. How are you? Oh, uh, hi. How are you? I'm good. Um, I'm glad we got this sorted out with all the time zones and everything. It's always difficult for Europeans. I don't know. I, I suppose you're more used to uh, working with different time zones in your professional life as well, aren't you? Uh, yes, to a certain extent, since we have four different time zones just in the U.S., That's right, yeah. Um, you're talking to us from Dallas, and I, I must admit, I only knew Dallas from the TV show from when I was young. Uh, and I know Europeans like to make fun of CNN when they mix up countries like Slovenia and Slovakia, but I think the Europeans are just as worse, just as bad when it comes to uh, US geography. So I, I looked up Dallas. It's uh, in Texas, that's right? Right. So uh, Texas is sort of along the southern border of the US, right in the center, and Dallas is actually North Texas. We're a good uh, eight to ten hour drive from the southern border. Wow, that's that's uh, that's a long time. It's it's a, a big state, isn't it, Texas? Yes, it's the third largest. So yeah, really big. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you're a certified translator with the American Translators Association and a Texas licensed court interpreter. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Can you tell us a bit more about what that what that means? The certification. Sure. So um, the for the translation, the American Translators Association offers certification exams. Uh, and it's a nationally recognized certification. So you take a translation test, and if you pass it, then you are uh, authorized to call yourself a certified translator by the uh, American Translators Association. And then on the interpreting side, if that's a state um, credential, basically, that uh, is the la licensed court interpreter. There are two designations, basic and master, depending on how you fare on the exam. Mm -hmm. And that one basically gives you the credential to be able to interpret in court proceedings in Texas. And you wouldn't be able to do that without the licensing or the certification? For court interpreting, uh, yeah, theoretically, you do need the licensing um, to be able to practice in courts, but there's there's a lot of progress to be made to make sure that that standard is kind of upheld. Because as far as I can tell, that's a bit of an issue in some of the European countries where I think you don't necessarily have to have the certification as a translator or an interpreter to work for the courts, but the judge can just say, okay, I'll, I'll pick this person to be the interpreter for this trial, which they would often do for the uh, smaller languages because mm -hmm. it's just so difficult to find the right people. But uh, is that an issue in Texas as well, or is it mainly just Spanish and English? Um, yeah, it's absolutely an issue. Um, and even, even though there are so many Spanish-English interpreters available, even in, in that language, there's a lot of lack in, in good practices in courts. So um, we, do, we do have that issue with the less less widely known languages, but also even even with Spanish. Yeah. Um, but let's uh, go back to the start, maybe. I'm interested in, in how you became an interpreter and maybe why as well. Because it's not oh. the typical dream job, I think. You know, some people want to become, I don't know, like a policeman, maybe, or an astronaut. It's, <laughs> the interpreters are not usually on, on that list. Um, <laughs> so what, 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 is, what was the reason that you uh, chose that career? 
Um, well, that's a good question. I will say it wasn't originally my dream job because I hadn't really heard about it, but it did become my dream job once I got a little taste of it. So I always studied languages in school. I enjoyed that. Originally, I wanted to go into journalism and a few, I had a few other ideas, but when I moved to Mexico to volunteer for a while, as I got more proficient in the language, I had some great opportunities to start doing some translation and interpreting in really informal kind of settings and really enjoyed it. And then I actually had my aha moment when um, I got the opportunity to interpret for a visitor who had come from the United States to Mexico at the time. And this visitor happened to have a pretty rare form of dwarfism. And we were, we were able to set up a meeting with a, a young child who was about eight years old who actually had that same form of dwarfism. And for me, it was just a really special time to be able to facilitate their, their exchanges to, you know, for this eight-year-old boy to be able to ask someone who was, you know, in his 20s, a little bit farther along in life, you know, what, what kind of get an idea of what, what was awaiting him, gave him some hope and things like that. And, uh, it was just a special moment, and I walk, kind of walked out of there saying, okay, I would like to, to really do this. I'd like to become a professional and, and keep facilitating these kinds of encounters. And this was right after college? Uh, it was actually right in the middle of college. I took a little break. I had advanced pretty quickly, and so when I was 18, I took a little break and went to Mexico and then came back and finished my degree. Um, and at that point, I, I looked for a, a Spanish program and took translation courses to focus on that once I got back. And that was in Texas as well? Where, I mean, university or? Yes, where I originally started in California, which is where I grew up on the West Coast. And then after I lived in Mexico, I finished school here in Texas. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think that the most famous interpreter training courses that we would know or that I would know, I think the one is in Monterey for conference interpreters. And mm -hmm. there's one in somewhere at the East Coast. Uh, the name escapes me right now. Um, but there are a few other possibilities for training as uh, a court interpreter, I suppose, or, or a translator for that matter. Yes, right now there are more and more training opportunities. When I was looking for a program, this was in 2005, um, the opportunities were much more limited. So I actually enrolled in one of the first um, translation certificate programs through the University of Texas at Arlington here in Texas when I was looking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and and after, the, after you finished your studies, how did, how did that Developed. Did you become a freelancer straight away or did you make an internship or something like that? I actually did uh, freelance right away. I actually started as a community interpreter, um, so going to hospitals and a few administrative hearings and things like that because I didn't feel that I was really ready to be successful on yeah. some of the, the court interpreting exams. So I got a lot of Uh, a lot of experience, a lot of confidence and studied for a really long time before taking my exams <laughs> yeah. to, to get into courts. That's great. Um, and, and is this when Preciso uh, started already, which is your company? Is that right? Right. So I founded a company right away. Um, I originally called it something much more boring um, and rebranded a few yeah. years ago as I've, as I've grown a little bit. But yeah, I've been very fortunate to be able to freelance this whole time. And um, have you always been on your own or do, do you have some kind of network? How, how do you do that? So I, mostly on my own. Um, over the past year or so, I've been able to kind of partner up with a few local interpreters that I kind of like to work with. And so we, we help each other out, you know, when, when we have some client needs that go a little bit beyond what just one person can do. Yeah. 
And so that's kind of how, how I've uh, been able to develop. And you work mainly with uh, English and Spanish? Yes. Yeah, I actually do exclusively English and Spanish. And then if something else you know, comes in, I refer it out to some, some colleagues that I know around town. Excellent. Um, and mm -hmm. I saw on your website that you, uh, you have an informal dinner, like, uh, is that once a month or with, uh, with other interpreters from, or translators from, from the Dallas area? Yeah, I'm glad you saw that. It's um, actually a really, really great little meetup that we've been doing for a little over a year now. Uh, we get together once a month, and it's specifically for court interpreters in the area and for people who are interested in the profession. So uh, we just get together. It's informal. We get together for dinner. It's been a good time to get to know each other and talk about some issues that we all face and also get to know some students and people who are interested in coming into the profession because Before, um, since basically here in this area, there are almost no staff interpreter jobs and there's very mm. little oversight of interpreters in court. And so we're all kind of like lone wolves, you know, going to our jobs every day and coming home. So it's been great to get to know everyone a little bit more. Yeah. And I think that those informal gatherings are really, really great because I went to just uh, one of those informal gatherings, I think when I was still in university and especially during my first years of uh, freelancing when I started out in the profession. And it was so great to be able to to talk to people who have done this for a while, who can, who can give you some advice, who maybe face the same problems. Um, and it was great. And, and for those who work mainly at home, i.e. The, the translators, it was a great uh, way just to socialize and, and meet other people, which you'd, you, know, you can't always do from, from the home office. So uh, it's great that this exists. But it, this, this one is, is uh, informal. It's, it's not um, associated with a professional association or something. Right. Um, that This one specifically, we kind of designed it to be separate from different associations so that it would be more accessible so people wouldn't have to feel like, oh, well, I have to join some organization to, to attend or anything like that. It's just super yeah. informal. Anyone can come and it's worked out really great. So how many people usually show up? Is, is it a really big thing? It's um, relatively big. We, right now at this point, we've had 20 to 25 people every month. Mm-hmm. So it's relatively big for, for the amount of professionals that we have in the area, sure. That's very nice, yeah. And you say it's, it's a mix between students and more seasoned colleagues, and, but mainly court interpreters. Right. So that particular gathering is really um, dedicated for court interpreters. Uh, and we do have some, some students and a lot of people who are already working in the profession. Yeah. Um, you talked about volunteering and, and your time in, in Mexico. And I also saw on your website that you still do quite a bit of... Uh, You called, I think, pro bono translation. So volunteering for the Human Rights Initiative of Dallas and Camp Summit. Can you tell us about that, maybe? Sure. I really always enjoyed um, volunteering in different levels and supporting nonprofit organizations in different ways. And so uh, right at the moment, uh, for example, Human Rights Initiative of Dallas has been working a lot. I don't know if, how much of our news gets over there, but we had a very large wave of Central American immigrant children come across our borders. Mm -hmm. And uh, Human Rights Initiative was working to assist um, th some of those cases, especially when they had legitimate asylum claims, to try to help some of those cases. So I was able to do some volunteer translations for some of those cases. And then uh, Camp Summit is actually a great program here around uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, and it's a, actually a free summer camp for children with disabilities. And so I was able to do some, um, help them get some promotional materials into Spanish so that they can mm. increase their outreach to the Hispanic community here. That's great, yeah. And I, I think it's probably also a nice, uh, nice to just do something else and, and, and give back um, a bit to these, to these courses. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we have a, a similar migrant issue at the moment in, in Europe, um, but uh, it's a different situation for you, I guess, because um, the people that come, they come mainly from Mexico or, or uh, South America or Latin America. Um, and I think here it's a much bigger variety of languages, so uh, mm. a, a different challenge as well f um, to get the right interpreters and the right translators to, to be able to give those people that have a fair claim uh, a fair chance as well to to state their case so it's 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 uh, difficult yeah sure yeah but this this is this is really nice um so we talked about this informal dinner as well and uh, i think it would be quite interesting for us or for me from from the european perspective to learn a bit more about the uh, interpreting or translation scene in in dallas and maybe um texas you, you seem to be quite up to speed with that so maybe you can tell us a bit more about that um, sure. So I, I personally do translations and code interpreting and a little bit of conference interpreting. Um, I wouldn't want to talk too much about the conference interpreting scene because I don't mm -hmm. do as much of it as some of my colleagues. But as far as uh, court interpreting, it's it's very interesting time for, the, for our profession right now because basically there's um, laws on the books and there are mandates from the executive branch that discuss that it's a civil right for people who don't speak English fluently to have language access when they come to courts. And so each state here is very independent in the way they interpret and apply certain things. And so for Texas in particular, as I mentioned before, we have kind of a, a scattering of applications in different courts. Some judges and some courts are very, very... Um, strict about making sure that they have qualified court interpreters available and mm -hmm. others are still kind of, you know, they like to, or they allow maybe an attorney to interpret and uh, be an attorney for their client at the same time. Or wow. maybe they ask, ask uh, people to come in and use their friends or family members to interpret. And then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, really we need to get to the point where the clients who don't speak English are not paying for their own interpreter service, which also happens a lot. Uh, so we have we have these issues that need to be focused on, and then some other states have actually been subject to lawsuits by the federal government because of these exact kinds of issues. And so what uh, some of us are hoping to work for is to improve the legislation in our own state, and hopefully we can make some changes instead of waiting for a top-down um, mandate from the federal government to force some of these changes in sort of a bureaucratic, you know, top-down way. Maybe yeah. we can create some of those changes and implement some best practices. Wow. Um, that, that was very interesting, um, especially the, the thing with the fees. So you say it sometimes happens that um, you have to pay for your own interpreter during a, a court case. It's, uh, it's not paid for by, by the state. Uh, right. So crim in criminal cases, typically th we, do, we do have pretty good practices there where the state will pay for it. But in any kind of civil case, uh, mm -hmm. with a few exceptions, the, the client is expected to pay for their own interpreting services. So that's an additional fee that they pay that an English speaker wouldn't pay. Yeah. Interesting. And, and there are, are there any statewide rules on what the fees are or can, can you just charge whatever you want, basically? Um, in that sense, we are fortunate from our professional perspective in that we don't have like statewide mandated fees. Um, the closest thing that we have around here is that certain counties have a set fee that they pay if you're actually hired by the courts. But beyond that, um, each of us is kind of on our own to set our fees. So we're, we're fortunate in that sense. Yeah. Okay. 
Interesting. Um, let's maybe stay in the, in the, in the area of, of uh, law and language because it's really very, very interesting. And, and um, I've been following not only in your website, but also on, on Twitter that you were uh, working with um, a person who wrote a dictionary, uh, actually, for legal terminology. Is that right? Oh, yeah, that was a really fun project. I was fortunate to meet um, last year when I was actually doing some studying for court interpreting exams in Tucson, uh, Javier Becerra, who is a professor in Mexico, and he has written some really great specialized dictionaries that are English-Spanish, Spanish-English, and they're really focused on U.S. and Mexican law. So after I met him, he was nice enough to grant me an interview, and then we were able to get that published in the American Translators Association magazine. So that was a lot of fun. It's a very good interview, by the way. I, I read it. And it's not only very interesting, but it's also very well uh, written. Uh, I really enjoyed the read. I'll put it into the show notes for the podcast so uh, other people can also can also um, read it. it. It's very nice. Um, oh, thank you. And it, it's, it sounds like a, a very interesting project. So you, are, are you... Um, but you're not working with him on the dictionary. You just talk to him about it and uh, probably use the dictionaries yourself. Right. I use the dictionaries um, with a lot of gratitude in my heart every time I have a tricky legal tra document to translate. Um, but no, I'm not actually working with him on the dictionaries, although I'm very curious to see how it plays out with some of the new digital offerings that he's uh, trying to come out with. Yeah, because you hinted at that in, in the interview that it may come out as, a, as an electronic edition as well, which right. I think brings us nicely to the next topic, which is uh, technology. So I already mentioned your website several times and, and your mm -hmm. blog, and uh, you're also quite active on, on Twitter. And I saw on your uh, website that you have um, a wallpaper for mobile phones with your logo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, by the way, that's maybe a nice, a nice segue. Can you tell us uh, about the logo a bit more? Who made it and, and where the idea came from? Um, oh, it's it's a little bird, right? With the Texas, like with a typical Texas hat and the, and the <laughs> cowboy boots. Right. Well, that's actually a special edition of my logo. So if you go to the website, to my website, you have the normal logo, which actually doesn't have a, a cowboy hat and boots. It's mm -hmm. just a, um, it's a, a bird that kind of, you know, in, originally the concept was it kind of represents communication because of their songs. Um, Actually, it's very interesting. The state bird of Texas is a type of bird that learns sounds around it, and it can have a repertoire of like 60 different tunes that it will sing. So if there's, you That's know, cool. uh, yeah, it's really fun. And then the colors on it are um, the colors of a, a famous flower in Mexico. But uh, one year for the American Translators Association conference, I made a Texas version of it. That way people would have an easier time identifying where I was coming from. And Obviously. it was such a hit that I have, you know, little stickers with it. And it's everyone loves the one with the birds, <laughs> with the boots and the hat. So I may well, I might just do away with the old one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could just switch to that altogether. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a very nice idea. Yeah. Um, and yeah, speaking of text, I wanted to talk um, to you about tablets as well, because I think... Um, The way I learned about you was uh, I somebody shared, um, maybe on Twitter, probably on Twitter, actually. Probably, uh, yeah. <laughs> your two posts about the paperless interpreter experiment. Um, and you basically did an experiment where you tried to use um, a tablet instead of paper, hence the name paperless interpreter experiment. For mm -hmm. those of us who have not read the, the blog posts, which are very nice, uh, by the way, can you... Maybe tell us what, what, where the idea came from and, and how it all went and, and uh, what you did. 
Sure. Yeah. Well, let me just say I, I'm glad that you and I met on Twitter through our mutual love of technology and, and tablets. So um, mm-hmm. what happened was as I started getting really, really busy in court interpreting, I was buying these bulk packs of legal pads to take my notes on. Uh, probably, I don't know how often, maybe every month or something, I was just going through tons and tons of paper and it yeah. just made me start thinking like, there's got to be a better way than, you know, carrying around these notebooks. And then sometimes I pull out my notebook and it's actually full, you know, and I don't have a fresh notebook, things like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, pens die and whatnot. And so I started kind of playing around with thinking, you know, there has to be a solution for this. So originally I started with an older, I think it was like a second gen iPad that I tested and really kind of determined that it was a little too glitchy to to take notes on because mm-hmm. I would be taking notes and then the app would crash. And so I was oh, like, yeah. okay, this, I can't handle this. No. But later on I found, um, a Samsung tablet that actually is called the galaxy note tab. And it has a little stylus that's actually, it has a nesting spot within the tablet. And, um, so I won't go into all the details, but the long story short is that it's worked really, really great. And I, I still use it to this day to take my notes on. It's wonderful. It was great, yeah, because I, I remember you were using sort of two apps side by side, and I was really, really jealous because um, <laughs> back then this was not possible on, on iPads. It's going to be possible, at least on the more recent uh, iPads starting uh, in the fall when iOS 9 comes out. But mm-hmm. you were already using that back, back then. So you had the notes, I think, on one side and some, uh, probably a dictionary on the other side. Yeah, so with... Um Samsung's native apps, which is what actually what I use to take notes on, it's just called S S Note. It's their native note taking app. You can yeah. you can shrink the screen, and then on the other side, you can put really whatever you want. If you want to put your your glossaries or a, you know a dictionary that you want to be able to access while you're while you're interpreting or whatever you like. Yeah. Um, and did you did you use a stylus for that? I think the, the Samsung one has a built in stylus even. Right, yeah. So I use the Samsung one with the built-in stylus, and I've never had any issues with it. It's a, it just, it's a good fit for my hand, so I've never really needed to buy an ex, extra stylus or anything. And I, I like that it nests in the tablet because I have never lose, lost it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that's a smart idea. That's true. But I, I also I have my memories of buying uh, huge um, stacks of legal pads when I was in university because mm-hmm. the the teacher that taught us um, notation and, and all the techniques and symbols, she was very particular about what kind of pen to use and what kind of <laughs> pad to use. Um, and of course, we, we followed the instructions uh, mm-hmm. very precisely. And then whenever we got to a shop that would have the those specific pads, we would just buy them, buy them and buy them. Um, sure. um, but I think at, at, at some point, we, we just had to buy so many that we started and then we built our own from old uh, scratch paper and that kind of thing. So it's, it's really nice. But, but the, what you said right now has happened to me as well, um, but um, the other way around, because I, I, I forgot to bring a pad and I, I had just one pen and you know everything didn't work. And I ended up using the iPad then as a digital notepad and mm-hmm. it worked just fine, which sort of mm-hmm. was my paperless interpreter experiment just a bit the, the other way around maybe. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but that's, that's very nice, yeah. But, um, I saw as well that you, that you had a few app um, recommendations uh, and applications that you use, for example, to track uh, expenses Expensify is the one you use, right? Yeah, so I do use Expensify. Basically, anything that has to do with accounting, I want to automate it as much as possible um, because otherwise it'll stack up on me and then it just becomes a mess. So Expensify mm-hmm. is great because you link your whatever your business accounts are for banking. You link them right into Expensify. You can set it up so that certain types of ex- recurring expenses are automatically categorized. So, you know, for example, for me, I, I park at 
at parking lots and courthouses. So I spend on parking every day. And so the, when Expensify recognizes a parking fee on my account, it will automatically categorize it. So I don't even have to look at that again. Just at the end of the year, I hit one button and it spits out a report with how much I spent in each, each category. So I really, That's really amazing. love things like that. Yeah. yeah. And then you can just use that to, to invoice your clients and uh, get the money as soon as possible, hopefully. Yeah, I think Expensify, I don't use it for invoicing. I use actually another um, free program called Express Accounts for okay. invoicing. So yeah, some, someday maybe I'll get something that can do it all in one, but I kind of like the solution that I've come up with at the moment. And then you use another app for um, time tracking. And I was wondering um, where, what you use that for, what, what kind of projects you would time track. Is that for translation or for, uh, I, th I saw that as well. And I, yeah, we need to talk about that as well. Um, you do transcription and translation of video. Um, do you use it for that, the time tracking app? Yeah, so I use it um, mostly for internal purposes. It's called Timesheet and it's really great. You kind of set up, you can have different um, projects going and you just put a widget for me since I have Android. I can put a widget on my home screen and it's yeah. just one touch to start and stop the clock and then, then I can see what I'm spending on each project. Most of my projects I don't actually bill for time. Um, if I'm doing it at home, like a translation or a transcription, but I kind of use it for my own internal purposes to see like, okay, I bid X amount and then I see, well, how long did I actually spend on that job? And then I kind of see if I need to adjust my rates next time. That is a very smart thing to do, I think. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, uh, I think very often we don't really know how much time a certain thing or a certain project takes. And, and, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a very smart thing to do. Um, and there's another time related app that I saw, which was clockwork tomato. For the Pomodoro technique, maybe you can quickly explain what Pomodoros are for those of us who have never heard of it. Yeah, so the Pomodoro idea is that you are going to train yourself to have 25 minutes of uninterrupted focus on one single task and mm -hmm. then followed by five minutes of um, kind of free time to you know get your water or whatever you need, as, as far as I understand it. I'm also not the expert, but that's what I understand. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just was looking for a little app that kind of works in the same way as Timesheet, where I can very easily start and stop it. It'll kind of ding me when I need to get back to work. It'll ding me when I can take a break and things like that. And so that's what uh, Clockwork does. And that's, it works well for you, the Pomodoro technique, because I've tried it. it it's, it's not for me. I don't know why. <laughs> Well, you know, I think it, it, it helps me in one sense because I have so many things coming in with Twitter and email and things like that. So when I have a project I just need to make progress on, that's kind of what I use it. Not every day, but I use it for things like that. And I don't know if I'm really using it because what I usually end up doing is I sit down and I skip breaks. I skip like six breaks. And so I sit and work for like three hours and then get up and take a break. So I'm not exactly using it. I think it's more of a mental construct to help me focus. Yeah, which is great. I mean, if, if it works, that's, that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, I've been meaning to ask you if you work with glossaries, if you make your own glossaries, and if yes, if you have a specific app for that or, or a technique that you use. You know, I think that's an area that I need to find a solution for because I do have some kind of disparate glossaries in Excel, and uh, every once in a while I'll try to work on them and, and update them, and I'm just not, not that studious about that. So if you have any recommendations, I'd be glad to hear them. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm not as uh, <laughs> not as diligent about that either. So I, I probably should be, yeah. but I'm, I'm just curious to see what what colleagues use. I don't know. I do you have the opportunity to look at a glossary when you're in, in the courtroom working, or is that is that possible at all? 
Um, you know, it is it is possible, and we definitely do it. And best practice is to do it when you know you're kind of caught off guard. You really don't know a word. But on the other hand, we also have a lot of pressure not to hold up the proceedings. And so I would say that most of the time we're not really using glossaries or dictionaries, although we should always have them with us so that if something yeah. you know does kind of come out of left field, we can check it out. Sort of as a as a fallback, um, just mm-hmm. in case. Yeah, and also during breaks, you know, if there was anything that I'm like, oh, I'm, maybe I have the idea that maybe I said something I need to correct it, I'll go check on the break. And then when I go back, you know, I might say, Your Honor, I need to correct, you know, X, Y, or Z that I said it should have been this other thing. Yeah, yeah, I see. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is what is summer like um, for you? Is, is it a slower period where you have less work? Do you do other things? Do you travel, I suppose, to a Spanish-speaking country, something like that? Um, for summer, well, we don't have as much of a, a slowdown here during the summer um, because ev- everyone's not off at the same time. So a lot of people do go on vacations, but it's sort of uh, random people. So I would say in general, business doesn't slow down to, for me too much, except for at the end of the year, the last two weeks of the year. Oh, okay. Um, but, you know, summer here is the time when a lot of, you know, since children are out of school, people take vacations. And I do end up going to Mexico um, usually about twice a year. And I'm looking forward to going next month, actually. Yeah, it's not that far away after all. Yeah, I'm counting down for sure. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a like a favorite spot that you like to go in Mexico? Well, I when I was living there, I lived in Mexico City, so that's usually where I go. Um, I've also had the opportunity to go to a couple of nice beaches like Puerto Vallarta. So I, if I have time to do that, I will definitely go out of my way to go there. Must be a great destination. I mean, Mexico City sounds very scary to me because it's just so big uh-huh. and so many people. Yeah. Um, but I've heard from a lot of people that the beaches are very, very nice in Mexico. Yeah, Mexico City is in a really, really amazing city. It's super cosmopolitan, and yes, it's very, very large. Um, and yeah, the the beaches are amazing. There's a lot of kind of outdoor adventures, if you like that. There's a lot of places where you can go caving or um, hiking, rafting, all of those things. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Okay. Listen, Ollie, it was really nice to, uh, to talk to you and uh, get a bit of insight into... Uh, your working life and into what interpreting and translating is like in Dallas, Texas. Um, thank you very much for taking the time. This was really, really interesting. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Okay. Um, then enjoy your vacation. Uh, everybody else, enjoy your vacation too. And uh, talk to you soon on Lang FM. Mm-hmm.